At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 471st episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who loves to dig into the reasons plants flourish. We're talking with returning guest Jake Mauer about deep roots in the soil. Jake was raised on a farm in North Georgia where his family produced broiler chickens and beef cattle. Growing up, the work was often hard, but the food was always good. Life on the farm is a good way to gain an appreciation for the connectivity of food production to our daily lives. Jake now works with farmers in Texas as a Texas A&M faculty member in the Soil and Crop Science Department and as an extension specialist with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension to communicate the importance of managing soil as a natural resource. Jake, we got to meet you in podcast episode 292 way back in September of 2017. Welcome back to the show. Are you ready to rock roots? Yeah, man, let's do it. Excellent. So I periodically get press releases from a soil organization, and I can't remember. I'm drawing a blank as to which one it is, but your name came up, and I reached out to you to talk about roots. So let's jump in and talk about roots. What's the big deal with roots? Oh, well, they're a pretty important part of the plant, actually. (laughs) You know, it's hard to know where to start with your question there. But we often, so often, almost always focus our attention on the top of the plant. You know, if we're growing corn, we want corn. If we're growing tomatoes, we want tomatoes. If we've got basil in a pot, we want the basil right? Mm -hmm. We give it some water, we give it some fertilizer, and that's often the end of our thinking. You know, we get what we want, we're happy, right? Sometimes things don't go right, and we don't get tomatoes, or we don't get corn, or our basil just dries up and dies in the pot. And a lot of times it's because we didn't really take care of the roots, right? So plants need roots. I mean, they start out, the first thing that grows, you know, out of the seed. is a, a little, a bit of the, uh, the cotyledon, right? And then the, the roots are coming out. And before it even pokes out of the surface, it's developing roots. So it's using energy from the seed to grow roots as an investment in its future before it can even photosynthesize, right? So roots are obviously a very important part of the plant. They anchor the plant to the surface of the planet, right? Keep it from just blowing off into the hinterlands. Mm-hmm. But they also provide this service for the plant where they are gathering water and nutrients for the plant. And that seems like such a simple thing, right? And I was just having this conversation with some master gardeners in, in Austin, Texas this morning, who I told to listen to your program. The soil is really not 
the uber hospitable environment we think it is for plants. So plants divert a large amount of their photosynthate carbohydrates and energy down to the roots in order to rest and wrangle away nutrients from the soil that it really, frankly, doesn't want to give up that easily. Right. So plant roots are modifying the soil environment. So they modify it, one, Greg, physically, uh-huh. just by growing through the soil, right? So right. two solids can't occupy one volume, right? I think that's a law of physics. Something like so, that. Yeah, so if roots are going to exist in the soil, they have to push some of that soil aside. So that's a really substantial way in which they're modifying the soil environment. That's pushing soil particles aside, making space for themselves, channels, right? But they're also modifying that environment really, really heavily on the chemical side as well by exuding this cool cocktail of compounds, this uh, acids, right, to uh, increase the solubility of certain nutrients chelators to keep micronutrient metals in play, enzymes to break down organic matter or liberate nutrients. Again, they, they just exude sugars to attract microbes. And chemotaxis, that's like a motion towards chemicals, a motion caused by a chemical gradient. So by releasing these sugars, they are calling out and say, here's some bait, here's some food. You guys come over here. And what they get in return is some activity by these bacteria, by these fungi that are attracted to sugars. It's like an easy lunch, but they're also modifying the environment by releasing their own chemicals and their own activities benefit the plant. And so roots are really, really active, expending a large investment of energy by the plant in modifying that below ground environment. And so the reason I I put it this way is we are always focused on our basil, on our corn, on our okra, on our tomatoes, all delicious things, by the way. But we fail to, because we can't see them, I mean, they're not front and center on our minds. They're occluded by the, the very solid nature of the soil. We don't think of them. They're not, they're not front and center on our minds, right? So mm-hmm. I encourage people, listeners of your program, dig up plants, look at their root systems, go online and look at pictures of root systems. It's really quite fascinating. Because, you know, a quarter to half of the plant could be the underground portion. And it's doing some really, really cool things that we benefit from, right? And we get fresh, nutritious stuff from them because of all this. But we also get, you know, from plants that we don't eat, trees, prairie grasses, even weeds, right? They're doing things in the soil that improve infiltrability or Mm -hmm. the permeability of the soil by water. And so I think you're out on the West Coast, right? But surely you remember Hurricane Harvey, which hit us here in oh, Texas yes. a couple yeah. of years ago now, right? It made national news. It certainly is still on everybody's mind here. One of the things about Houston is that it's covered in heavy clays, which are not very permeable. That's just the soil type that happens to be there. And so when you get, uh, you know, 50 inches of rain over two nights, it doesn't have anywhere to go. It just can't percolate downward because the soil's not that kind of soil that accepts it. Right. You know, we think about using natural solutions to restore hydrologic functions in urban environments and increase the permeability and decrease the 
collection of water, the detention of water, and the, the overland runoff of stormwater, I think roots can play a really big part in that by creating channels by which water can go down into the soil and, and decreasing compaction and increasing permeability. So, you know, what we eat is important, of course, but also all the things that roots do for our ecological function, our environmental services, ecological services are uh, something that we also maybe many of us don't focus on enough or, or think about or consider. So I bring that up. Nice. So one of the interesting things you said is, and I, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, you said that roots can be as big as the plant? Well, yeah. So so half of the plant could be a root. Now, this is not always the case. There's a spectrum right. of what we call shoot-to-root ratio. So often, you know, some plants that have evolved survival strategies to really, really anchor themselves and explore the soil, they can have more below ground than they have above ground. But then many other plants that produce a lot of grain plants like corn and and wheat will often have more than 50% above the soil surface. So different plants have different things going on. But yes, I mean, it's fair to say that it is more than plausible that over half the plant could be below the ground. Wow. You mentioned weeds and I'm a fan of weeds in my yard, and you know, kind of pe- people kind of look at me funny when I say that. But what I what I've discovered about yeah, exactly right. What I've discovered about weeds is that they're pi- pioneer species, so they show up first. They do the heavy digging, and they're mining nutrients out of the soil because they, they have a tendency. Weeds generally have a tendency to be good mi- nutrient miners. So what what I'll often do with a weed is I'll cut it off an inch below the ground, throw the weed top into the chickens, and leave the roots of the weed in place. So I've cut off the growing tip of it, but I've left this could be massive root zone, uh, root structure in there that eventually rots and creates pathways for water. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's very interesting. When you leave a root system in the ground and it starts to decay uh-huh. and its substance you know, shrinks away, it does leave behind. What I mentioned and what you mentioned, a network of macropores is what we soil scientists call them, but basically channels that could be you know, a half a millimeter in uh, diameter to a couple, three millimeters in diameter that just provide an easy pathway for the next plant's roots or Mm -hmm. for water to percolate in. And those are very important things to be happening in soil. When we don't have any roots at all, we don't have any of that going on. And soil's basically not doing anything much. I I shouldn't say that. I I mean, soil's always got life going on in it. But uh, in terms of building itself up, that's not what's happening when we don't have any roots in the soil at all. In fact, we would expect that organic matter would start to decrease without life, without plant life being part of the soil system. So one of the reasons that I like what you said about just leaving weed roots in your yard has a lot to do with a a story that I dealt with a a farmer that I work with a, a good bit in central Texas. And we were talking about trying to get cover crops in. And it's not something we're always successful about in Texas. Um, fitting cover crops in between the late summer and the early planting dates we have here. And one of the reasons is is our rainy season is over the winter. And it's hard to get equipment 
into the field to work the soil when the soil is very wet. These clays can be wet for a long period of time after a couple of inches of rain. And we were thinking about novel ways to treat cover crops. How could we get cheap cover crops so that we didn't, if the timing was off, we didn't have to worry about getting to maturity and what could we do? And one of the things that we tried, there's this really universally hated weed called henbit here. Oh, yes. And it blows off water. Like, the farmers hate henbit because it steals all the water from your crop before you get it into the ground. But in that winter between 2017 and 2018, in this particular scenario, the, uh, the soil was too wet to get into. And we were looking at missing a planting date for cotton. And so the farmer, instead of spraying herbicide to kill the henbit, left it alone and let it suck out water so that that field was drier two or three days earlier than the other field so that he could plant. And that made a huge difference. Two or three days is a huge difference with cotton. So thinking creatively about how we can use different plants that we may have a perception of as unwanted and thinking about how their roots and their physiology works in terms of what we're trying to get out of our system is is great. And that's clearly what you did there in your yard. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. The farmer actually used the hen bit to soak up the water or absorb the yeah, water no, because to, it's not soaking it yeah, up. Yeah, to it's, blow it off, to transpire it into the atmosphere. Right. And so he was thinking creatively about what we what is normally an unwanted character of this plant it suddenly became something he could exploit. Wow. That took some interesting thinking to go there. Yeah, and I was afraid when he admitted that at the uh, Wednesday morning coffee shop that everybody would laugh at him, but he got along okay. (laughs) Nice. You mentioned cover crops. Uh, Let's talk about the importance of cover crops. Oh, my goodness. I I wouldn't know where to start with that, Greg. Uh, (laughs) Well, why plant them? Let's go there. Why plant them? Okay, so one reason would be to keep, keeping with the root theme, is to keep living roots in the soil system year-round. Okay, so that's a really important thing. If we go fallow over the winter, there are certain species of microorganisms that are obligate symbiotes, so they must have mutualism. They can't live on their own. Right. And so if we, we harvest in, let's say, September, and we don't plant again until February or March, well, that's a whole six or seven months where we just don't have anything for them to latch onto, right? And so they go very dormant, and it takes a much longer time for them to rebound in the spring and help out at beneficial microbes to help out our summer crop. So we give them a lifeline to hang on to by providing roots in the soil with live plants for them to be mutualistic with. Then their populations are greater. When we plant our next crop for cash in the spring, they're already ready to start working with. Okay, and so they get the benefits much, much earlier. And if we have fluctuations in the climate or unexpected dry periods or unexpected heavy rain, these kind of associations between fungal organisms or bacterial organisms or roots very, very often seem to make a difference in that plant's ability to be resilient towards those kind of environmental stresses. When I found with the cover crops that I've used in my front and backyard here at the urban farm is that they also provide some shade because it's really hot here and green organic matter at the end of the season. So this is true. And these are non-root benefits. So they're pulling up nutrients. Uh, they're putting them into biomass or, you know, just 
plant material above the ground and below the ground. And then when they die, lay over, you mow them, whatever, they just roll over, they start to decompose and release those nutrients again. That's a very important thing. Also, the roots and the plants themselves prevent water and wind erosion of soil. Soil is a very, very important and often overlooked natural resource, right? And oh, yeah. if we don't anchor it or stitch it together with plants, we can have the dust bowl occur again, you know, where massive amounts, you know, millions of tons of soil are transported via the wind from where they start to someplace else far, far away. And if you remember the story of the dust bowl, you know, <laughs> I don't know how much it is hyperbole because it was a little before my time, 1937. But, yeah. But supposedly, you know, the most famous story that always sticks in my mind is that they were debating at the Capitol building whether to enact legislation to protect soil as a resource or, or you know, provide some kind of amelioration in terms of fiscal resources to farmers. And, you know, someone was looking at this big cloud of dust approaching from Oklahoma to the steps of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., and they kept the debate going and kept it going and going, and eventually that big cloud of soil reached the Capitol steps, and when it did, that made everybody make up their mind to go ahead and decide soil was a really important thing and we need to protect it and keep it where it is. And so some of the action and research and best management practices that actually came out of the Dust Bowl was to decrease tillage, right, so that we don't uh, loosen the soil up and make it vulnerable to erosion, but also to start planting non-cash crops in the off-season to stitch it together and keep it where it belongs. And those are other benefits of cover crops, just really, really important benefits. Yeah, well, just the consistency of having something there keeps the microbes alive in the soil. I talk about the concept of soil continuity. And anytime we have a, an, an interruption in the soil, like tilling, a disturbance, we turn it over, we destroy the structure, we vaporize those roots that we left in there and leave them uh, open to uh, mineralization and, and respiration by bacteria as carbon dioxide. Anytime we have these real big disturbances and discontinuities in the soil ecosystem, then, then the soil has to rebound and it takes some time to do that. And so not tilling all the time and having living roots in as often as you can manage, those are ways to provide that kind of continuity that the plants and the microbes and, you know, the ecosystem services all benefit from. And then we do. Yes, yes, we do. We don't even pay for ecosystem services. Yeah, exactly. You brought up healthy soil, and I'm quite sure, because this is my favorite question to ask podcast listeners or podcast guests, uh, you brought up, healthy soil. Can you just dive into what healthy soil is just for a couple of minutes? Well, there's a concept put forth called soil health, which holds that a good and well-functioning soil should be friable, have good physical characteristics that promote root, root growth, enhance root growth. You should have good permeability. You should have organic matter. You should have a high level of beneficial organisms and a low amount of detrimental organisms. This concept of soil health follows in the footsteps of what we used to call soil quality, mm -hmm. which was a, a, a term in the 90s, early 2000s, which meant something very, very similar, which followed in the footsteps of an old English term, tilth. Tilth, T-I-L-T-H. T-I-L-T-H. 
TH. That's right. Yeah. And there was an organization called Oregon Tilt that's, uh, I believe, still around. It is. Um, that really promoted organic farming and, and being in tune with the soil as a resource and a medium for growing things in. And so I think the, the current movement for soil health just follows in the footsteps of that. And I think, you know, I'm talking about Western-centric ideas here, but there are cultures all over the world and every continent who have appreciated the value of soil as well. And I wish I knew I had a catalog of all the terms that have been used throughout history, but I would at least like to recognize that we weren't the people that invented the concept of, of tilth or soil quality or even soil health. We may be just lucky enough to rediscover it. <laughs> cool. So you use the word friable. I've heard that yeah. before. I honestly don't know what it means. Can you tell me? Oh, sure. It means that uh, the soil is, is easily moved within the, the hand. You know, um, it's it's got enough space and very little compaction. So it's got space for roots, air pockets, and, you know, tiny air pockets, uh, void space, low compaction. And that if you were to pick it up and hold it in your hand, you could move it around pretty good. It doesn't hold onto a big, heavy clod that you can't crush in your hand. Got it. All right. But also, on the other hand, Greg, it should not completely vaporize into dust when you crush it either. So it should have some small amount of structure, but not massive structure. Yeah. And how does one go about making good, friable soil? <laughs> well... If you're lucky enough to live on, let's say, a, a silty loam that's not compacted, you're halfway there already. If you live on blackland clay in Texas, you're going to be fighting with friability your whole life because it's 45, 50% clay. When it's wet, it sticks to your shoes unforgivingly. And when it's dry, you can't even get a trowel through the top half inch. And so a lot of that has to do with the type of soil you're blessed with living on top of or working with. But there are things that you can do to increase the friability of soil. One is to have roots growing in it all the time. I mean, Yay. Roots are key. You know, adding organic matter, promoting the natural production of organic matter through roots, having good organisms, both the macroorganisms like worms, right? Raise your hand if you like worms. Oh, yeah. Both hands up. I see everybody's hand is raised now. That's good. And then microorganisms that we can't see either. And a lot of it uh, has to do with these. Uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure last time we talked, we were talking about our muscular mycorrhizal fungi, which are an obligate symbiote with plant roots. And these AMF, arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, they exude things that really contribute to nice structure in soil. And it's called, they're, they're called uh, agglomulins, these types of proteins that tend to glue soil particles together mm -hmm. and make individual tiny clay particles become part of an aggregate or a small structure that is greater than the sum of its parts. It functions as a microclimate for microorganisms, a microhabitat for microorganisms, a different place for water to exist that isn't subject to the exact same physical demands as the bulk soil around it. Structure is amazing in terms of its influence over soil properties and its friability, what you want out of a, out of a good and well-functioning soil. Yeah. So we've been chatting now for about 25 minutes and what oh, I, I'm sorry to keep you, Greg. Oh, no, 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 no problem at all. <laughs> this is uh, all good. Uh, what I want to do is I want to boil it down to maybe two or three things that our listeners can do to nurture 
their roots? What What is it that we can do? We already talked about cover crops. Tillage is a double-edged sword. I want to bring this up, and I know a lot of people I work with may roll their eyes at me, but some soils occasionally have to be mechanically disturbed to overcome compaction. Yeah. Other soils may not have to be mechanically disturbed as much. So making sure that the soil is available for lots of root proliferation is an important thing. Root carbon is different than top plant carbon. This is something I didn't I meant to say earlier. It's much more it has much more lignin, okay, which is a longer lasting carbon. Mm-hmm. So if you take a plant top and you let it decompose on top of the soil or even till it into your garden, it's going to decompose very rapidly. But roots are going to decompose much less rapidly. They have a type of carbon that is resistant to breakdown. Interesting. So that's that is one thing, uh-huh. and the more you can get roots to grow, the more of this you get, and it just builds year after year. So if you get deep and lateral root proliferation, you can get this natural distribution of these channels and this organic matter throughout your soil. And then rotating plants in the same area means you have different patterns of root proliferation, which means you're getting a different distribution of nutrients, organic matter, and macropores year after year after year. Nice. So really what it comes down to is grow lots of roots. Yeah, yeah. So if you allow weeds to grow in your yard and your neighbors aren't making you stop, you know, that's not a bad thing because, you know, actually monoculture is kind of a bad thing. That's a whole conversation in itself. And I, yes, I totally agree. <laughs> so I'm going to shift on you and I'd like as a returning guest for you to share a vivid childhood memory associated with food. Okay, I thought about this because you gave me a heads up a week ago. When I was a really young kid, my mom, I loved pizza, okay? And that was my favorite food. Uh-huh. But my mom used to give me this drink, which was actually just juice from the spinach can. Uh-huh. You follow me? Like a can of spinach. Yeah. She she cut the top, but instead of dumping the spinach out, she just dumped the juice out in a little cup. It was like one of them little jelly jars, you know, the short. Right, yep. I, I have this vivid memory of drinking spinach juice and loving it when I was like four or five years old. Full of nutrients. So, yeah, it was. I'm sure it was healthy for me. I mean, look at me now. I'm full of spinach. Anyway, the vivid memory part of that is one morning she had to leave early from work, and she convinced me I was old enough to take care of breakfast by myself, and she left a couple of containers on the counter, one of milk, one of spinach juice, and then a bowl of dry cereal, and I was supposed to put the milk on the cereal and drink the spinach juice, but in my bleary-eyed, you know, waking up state, I poured the spinach juice on my cereal and drank the milk straight away, and as I finished the milk, I realized what I had done, and so I had a really great bowl of Cheerios, if I can say that on your program, sure. and spinach juice. <laughs> So that's that's my memory, and I think I I think I had a pretty healthy day after that. Nice. And one new piece of advice for our listeners. I'm reading a book right now, right now by one of my favorite authors, Michael Shabon. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but uh-huh. people have mispronounced my name for years. Michael Shabon. He uh, I think he won uh, an award for another book. But this is called Summerland, and it's this really rich book. Uh, that lives part-time in a fantasy world where baseball is king. But it uses baseball, the rules of baseball, and the ethos of baseball as a metaphor for sort of diving into environmental protection and respect. 
Whoa. Can you get there from there? I don't know. You've got to read the book. Michael Shabon, Summerland. That's my piece of advice. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing that. I'm going to go check out that book. Yeah, man. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Email me uh, at my uh, work email, which is jake, J-A-K-E dot Mauer, M-O-W-R-E-R at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Excellent. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash deep roots. If you would like to hear more from Jake, you can find him in episode 292 of our podcast and also at urbanfarm.org forward slash root notes. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.